Thank you, Ryan. Brian, would you come? Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and if you have them open, that's great. If not, uh, there's Bibles in the pew in front of you, or the seat in front of you, rather. You can tell my age when I start talking about pews, can't you? Um, and, uh, and it is on page 802, if you would like to follow along. As Matt said earlier, this is our last uh, session, our last time in our series, our Advent series of Hope from the Minor Prophets, and this one is Hope for the Cynical. Um, as we head into 2004, I think there's a lot of reason for cynicism, isn't there? Um, cynicism is defined as the belief or the conviction that others are acting out of self-interest and not in any regard for others. And so it carries with it a general distrust it is a general distrust of other people's motives and then the skepticism, the, you know, the doubt that um, what they're saying is true follows along with it. Uh, we experience it with politics, don't we? We're a nation that is incredibly divided. And we're a nation full of people that don't think that our elected officials are acting out of anything but self-interest. Um, and I'm not going to push that at all. I just, there's a lot of people who feel that way, a lot of cynics when it comes to politics. In sports, we've seen that money talks, doesn't it? We've had vast changes in, the, in our sports industry because of money acting out of self-interests. And even in the public square, we doubt anybody who questions our convictions now. We, we think that they have improper motives, that they're actually no longer becoming one of us, they're becoming one of them. So there's cynicism everywhere. And what cynicism eventually does is it, is it, it, it makes us feel like we're constantly battling. We're constantly battling for our interests because we don't feel that anybody else has our interests at heart. And eventually we get a what's the use feeling. What's the use? We're just, it's just too much. And so that, that kind of mentality, that kind of feeling, is what Malachi wrote to. Now, Malachi um, wrote this prophecy about 60 years after Zechariah and Haggai. If you were here last week, we looked at Zechariah and his great predictions. And about 60 years after that, give or take, uh, this prophecy was written. And uh, in the meantime, very little had happened. None of the spectacular prophecies of Zechariah or Haggai had really come to pass. The temple had been rebuilt. That was their concern. But, but there was no influx of the nations. There had been no shaking of the nations and wealth that had come into Israel they were, or to Judea. They were still poor, downtrodden. There were no, no independence from Persia. They were still dominated by a foreign country. So they got a little bit cynical. God had promised these things, but nothing had been delivered. And, and a sense of what's the use feeling had set in to the Jews at this time that this is directed at. Only 
In this case, it was directed at God. What's the use of following him? What's the use of uh, an intense obedience because he's not looking out for our interests? And so Malachi spoke into a time of religious cynicism. And, uh, and so he, he, addressed, he wants to address, not, not he wants to, he did address the apathy. He addressed the negligence in worship and the general dishonoring of God that was taking place that flowed out of this distrust and this cynicism of the people. And he used a rare style of prophetic discourse, a rare form, and it's called the disputation. And it's a question and answer format um, that he used to, to deliver the message of God to the people. Here's a slide that kind of shows the, um, the form. So there's a statement made by God at first, and then a questioning by Israel. And if you look through the book, you'll see God makes a statement. And he goes, well, how, how have we done that? And then God makes a response, and, and then there's an explanation of the response. So we'll see that in, in a few moments as we deal with our passage. But the book of Malachi, the entire book, is a series of these disputations. And I'm going to suggest to you that it's made, uh, as they so often did, in the memorization form of a chiasm. And so you can see it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. And so they're able to um, remember it because so few things got written down, it was expensive to write things down. And a lot of these issues that are, are taking place are aimed at the priesthood, and they're aimed at the same type of issues that Nehemiah is going to have to deal with when Nehemiah shows up uh, to Jerusalem. And so if you read Malachi alongside of Nehemiah, you see that there's a really significant overlap. And it's a really fascinating thing. We can't go into it right now. Um, it'd be fun to do it on an E412 class sometime. Um, but suffice it to say that the overlap and the comparison of the details allow us to date Malachi fairly precisely. Uh, it would have been just a few years before Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem because the problems that, that Malachi addresses are the problems that Nehemiah begins to reform. And so he was spoken just before Nehemiah got there. So he spoke, or Malachi wrote, probably somewhere around 450 B.C., about 60, 70 years after Zechariah and, and uh, Haggai. So with all that background, let's move to our passage. And here is the fourth disputation of, of Malachi that uh, Ryan just read for us. And we can see here the first part, the statement from God, you have wearied me. You have wearied the Lord with your words. That's pretty significant if you can weary the Almighty. And then there's the response uh, of Israel's question. But you say, how have we wearied him? What do you mean? What have we done? And then comes God's response. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So there's the form of disputation, and then from 3, 1 through 6, we have the explanation of, um, <clears throat> of what God's response is and what he's trying to teach them through Malachi. 
So let's go, what is this disputed issue that's happening? As I said, God is wearied of them. Now, he's not truly tired. I mean, the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, cannot be wearied. But relationally, he's just tired of what he is hearing from his people. There is a lack of trust. There is a negligence in worship. They're bringing sacrifices to the temple that are blemished, that they wouldn't even offer their officials. There is a disbelief in the promises, and it's all stemming from this cynicism, which is actually uh, the most heinous of sins, and that is they're saying that God is not who He says He is. That God has made them promises, He has said that He's with, and they're saying, no, no, you've done nothing. And the apathy that, and the cynicism that's flowed from that is wearying to Him. He's made promises to them through the prophets, and He hasn't brought them to completion. He couldn't be trusted to help his people despite what he said because they're still, they're poor, they're downtrodden, they're uh, oppressed by others. Nice words, Lord, but you've done nothing. They were cynical. Not helping out. He's not looking out for us. In fact, they say, he's actually pleased with those who do evil because they're clearly doing a lot better than we are. This is really the same issue that you read in the Psalms, Psalm 37 or Psalm 73. Let me, let me pick Psalm 73. It's one of my favorites. Asaph says he looks out and he sees the wicked and they're prospering and they're healthy and they're actually, they're actually a little bit overweight, which was a sign of riches back then because everybody's fighting just to get the next meal and these people are actually overweight because they have so much. And, and Asaph says, they have the shalom that you promised us. And he said, my feet almost slipped. I almost left the faith because it seemed, God, that you were pleased with the evil, the wicked, and not with your own people. And we see the same thing in Malachi here. That God has not followed through with what he said earlier in the prophets. And the people say, what's the use? Why should we try so hard when he's not going to do what he says? You can see how God would get wearied of that attitude, wouldn't you? Or what is, where is the God of justice? That's a little less offensive than the first one. They're accusing God of being absent. There's no justice in the land because God's not doing anything. Where, where is this is something that that we also see in the Psalms. This is an attitude that had been in Israel before. In fact, going back to Psalm 73, Asaph said something like, where, where is uh, the Almighty? How can God know? How is there knowledge with the Most High? He doesn't know what's going on. There's no justice. And you see the cynicism that God is not acting in their behalf. He is actually pleased with others who are ignoring him, and so why try? And so they developed this negligent attitude towards God. The, as I said, the animals that they brought were ones that he had said were not acceptable for sacrifice, but who cares? What's the use? He's not going to do anything about it anyway. There was no commitment to their marriage covenants. 
And what, what's actually happening there is they're divorcing their, the wives, their Jewish wives as they get older so that they can marry young foreign wives. And, I mean, it doesn't take long pondering to, th- to re- think that that's going to wipe out God's people pretty quick, right? There's not going to be any distinction anymore. And so there's no, no commitment either to the covenant or to personally to the wives that they had committed to. And there's no commitment to their covenant with God. And this, this lack of obedience, this lack of trust, this lack of commitment to the character of God had developed this negligence. And God is wearied of it. In fact, the first disputation in the book is actually whether or not God loves them. They've even gotten to the point where they didn't believe that God loved them. And I think before we move on from the disputation into the responses, it's important to think, you know, a lot of times we we can look back at the ancient Israelites or the ancient Jews um, because they were Jews after they came back from the exile. Israel was gone. It was just Judea where the Jews were. We can look back at them and we can think, knuckleheads. I mean, we would have done so much better, right? But we fail sometimes to realize that they are us and we are them. That this is a human problem. This is a problem, fundamental human God issue. And technically the question is, will God do as He says? But But we would all answer yes to that, wouldn't we? God is faithful. We believe He's going to do what He says. That's not really the question in our heads. So often, the question is that we take it relative to us, we take it temporal, and the question is, will He do what He says now for me? Will He do what He says now for me in my lifetime? And we tend to see his action relative to us. We become the center. And, and if he does what, what benefits us, if he does what he says and it helps me, then, then we're willing to ascribe to him that he is true and he is real and he meets my needs. But if he doesn't, if he fails to keep sorrow and grief and illness and difficulties and troubles from coming our way, then so often we resort into the troubles of the problem of suffering and the problem of evil. We begin to doubt his character just like they did. We begin to doubt his reality in some points. And often, quite often, we begin to doubt his love for us. I, uh, I've often sat with people who we're going through different things, often um, great sins. Uh, in, in this verse 5, he condemns adultery, and, and often I've sat with people who are in the middle of being involved with someone who's not their spouse. And inevitably what would happen is they would have to redefine God. That God was not who he said he was. He did not hold to what he said or he had said but rather he loves me in spite of it, or he hates me now, 
or it doesn't matter, or somehow God had to be redefined. This is something that we do. It's the foundation that if he meets my needs, it's okay. If he doesn't, then we have a problem. And when this root takes form and blossoms, it's the prosperity gospel. That God is here to meet my needs. And the 60 years that he has done nothing here mean that we must redefine who he is. And God is so wearied. And you can see why I've included verse 6 in with this passage, even though it's separated by a heading. Because God says, I don't change. You think I've changed, but I don't change. And so this problem of thinking that we can redefine God based on our experience is something that for each of us we need to think about and how we do it and how we respond to the issues of life and how we think God is dealing with us and what he is aimed at doing with us. It's a problem of humanity, not just the Jews. So what is God's response? And it is a weighty response. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Verse 1. God says, oh, you want me to come down there? I'm coming down there, but you not, might not like. It might not be what you think. I remember a, a number of years ago, we went out to Christmas at my parents in the Philadelphia area. And uh, my sister came over, and they brought their kids, which have ages similar to ours. And, and so at Christmas Eve, they all went downstairs to the basement. We had all, you know, all the older kids down there to sleep. And Christmas Eve, they weren't sleeping. And at some point, as we talked upstairs, it kind of got a little too much. And so I walked over to the basement stair door and opened it and said in my best dad voice, Hey, do you want me to come down there? And my kids, who knew the voice and knew that the implications of it were very seldom pleasant, were all silent. But my nephew, who didn't know me because we lived in Chicagoland and they were in, in Philly area, he, he was like, well, nobody's saying anything. So I, I hear this little voice. And he says, no, we're okay, thank you. <laughs> but we'll call you if we need you. Isn't that perfect? That's exactly what they're doing. Listen, we need you to come down here. We need you to clear up this mess. We need you to do things for us. But they don't know the implications of it. And what God says is, okay, I'm going to send my messenger first. Now, the messenger in Hebrew is the same word as angel. But I don't think we're talking with an angel here because of the imagery of preparing the way. This is actually the imagery of a state visit. So in our time, when a foreign president or foreign leader comes, they come in and they land at Andrews Air Force Base and they roll out the red carpet and there's military hoopla and bands and, and they come in and there's a, a high-level state dinner and those kinds of things. We put on the show, don't we? In those days, when a king said, I'm coming to your city, it was a similar thing. They treated it as in a similar way. But they didn't have planes. 
And so one thing that they did, a significant thing, is they sent out the road crews and they made sure that the road coming into the city was prepared. Obstacles were out of the way. It was cleared so that this king could come in and it would be a smooth journey. And that's what the Lord is saying here. I'm going to send my messenger to you because you are not ready for me to show up. If I show up now, you're unprepared. And so the messenger is going to come and he is going to prepare the way before me. Now we know um, that they were seeking the Lord here, it says, and he was going to come. And it wasn't quite, just like my nephew, it wasn't quite going to be what he thought it was going to be. This messenger we know from the New Testament, this is the verse that is quoted to describe John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was going to prepare the way for our Lord Jesus as he came. And interestingly enough, in this passage, if you look in verse 1, see where it says, and the Lord whom you seek? If you notice, that's in low capitals. Whereas just in verse 27, the Lord is in all capitals. That's the divine name. That is the Father, the Lord himself. The lowercase one is the word Adonai. And used with a definitive article, the Lord, it always means the divine one. So we're not talking about a master. We're not talking about some. We're talking about a divine person who's going to come in verse 3, but he's differentiated from the Lord himself. We saw this last week with the angel of the Lord, didn't we? That what we're talking about here is the messenger is going to come and prepare the way before me, and the divine one is going to come. So we've got three people. We've got the Lord, full case letters. We've got the Lord, Adonai, second case, and we've got the messenger who's going to prepare. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is that the Lord is speaking here. The Father is speaking here. And he's saying that the Lord whom you seek is coming. And it is the divine one, but it's not him. This is another instance of the pre-Jesus, the pre-incarnate, eternal Son of God coming. And he is preceded by the messenger whom we know is John the Baptist. And so the Father is going to send the Son who will be preceded by John the Baptist and he's going to come to his temple which is a significant part of the story of Jesus, isn't it? And guess what? Here's the bad news. No one can endure his coming. No one can stand. That when he comes, they're not ready to meet him. They think that he will just come in and destroy his enemies and they'll raise Judah up to world ascendancy. But actually that's not the way it is. Psalm 130 says, if, if you count our sins, who can stand? No, no, they were sinful and, and if God showed up, they would suffer and be destroyed just like the enemies. And Joel 2 says, In the great awesome day of the Lord, who can endure it? I suspect that Malachi was reflecting on Joel when he wrote that. 
By the way, Malachi is also the word for messenger and angel, and some think that this is kind of an anonymous title um, that m- might not have been his name at all. Don't really know. You can tell how important it is that it just kind of popped into my head right now. It's not, but, but in, this, in this prophecy, he's saying that when the messenger of the covenant, who is the Lord, who is Jesus, the messenger of the covenant and the Lord whom you seek are the same person. When that person comes, you are not ready. And judgment will come. You will not be able to endure and you will not be able to stand. But here's the good news. The good news, the Lord says, is that this is not the final judgment. This is not when I'm going to come down and destroy enemies. This is not when every sin will be accounted for and I will take into judgment. This coming is actually a preparation coming. The message is going to prepare the way for the Lord, and the Lord is going to prepare you to meet me. And he's going to be like a refiner. And he's going to be like a purifier. He's going to be like one who refines silver, which actually I learned in this is a complex little process that has to be carefully done with. And when it's pure, as it cools, it still has to be uh, taken care of. And and I guess they used charcoal on it so that it would retain its shine, so that it could reflect and be almost like a mirror. That's what he's going to do to you refine you and make you shine like the sun. He will, he will cleanse you like Fuller's soap, the man who was, who was responsible to keep the garments clean. That this son would come and cleanse and purify. You want me to come down in all my holy power while you're doubting me while you're dishonoring me, while you're basically essentially calling me a liar, and you want me to do everything for you, but actually I would destroy you. So despite what you think of me, I'm going to send one who will prepare you to meet me. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's quite different from the God who they claimed has changed. No, he's still the gracious God who is going to maintain his promises to his people and to his servant David. And he's going to do for them graciously what they cannot do for themselves. And so it is this, the Lord, who will come suddenly and and refine them and purify them. That's what Jesus did for us. He came and lived as one of us, as the perfect Israelite of whom this, this paragraph does not apply to, except it's about him. But you know what I mean. He never sinned. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet he took our sins on him, just like we saw last week out of Zechariah. He put those sins on just like Joshua the priest had taken them off. He bore them for us, our transgressions, and he paid for them so that we could be pure, so that we could be refined and prepared. Isn't that what Ephesians 5 is about? Talking about husbands and wives, but it's actually mostly talking about Jesus. He prepares his church, his bride, without a wrinkle, without a spot, without a blemish for himself, prepared to meet the Lord for himself. That's what he does for us by virtue of his own death and resurrection on the cross. And then... He purifies the sons of Levi, 
so they might bring offerings in righteousness. These are the people who could draw near. And I could talk about this for a while, but suffice it just simply to say that he chooses Levi, I think, because those are the people who are privileged to serve in the temple. And what, what this reflects to us is that there's a priesthood of all believers, that we are allowed to draw near because of what Christ has done for us, prepared to meet the Lord himself. And the offerings in righteousness now, well, they've changed, haven't they? In the Old Testament, they brought animals, and the animals were then killed, and, and it was horrible. But they were substitutes for the people. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes, and he is our substitute, and he dies for us. But that's once and for all. There's, there's no more substitution sacrifices. So when we sacrifice rights offerings now, it's us. We offer ourselves to Him in worship. We offer ourselves to the Lord to follow Him. And that's what the angel of the covenant has done. That's what the Lord Himself, Jesus Christ, has done for us. It's a marvelous thing, isn't it? He's prepared those who were unprepared. And then... Back to the bad news. In verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The present evil that's happening in Judah has to stop. I will be gracious to you. I have not forgot my promises. But the moral demands to follow me still remain. The present wickedness has to change. And look at what he says there at the second sentence. I will be a swift witness. This is the very thing that has brought about their cynicism that he hasn't done anything for 60 years. And he says, oh, when it comes, it's coming fast. And... I will be prosecution, witness, and judge. No one is going to question my verdicts. And it will be against those who fail to follow my law, who fail to imitate me. The moral demand still is there. It's still a requirement of holy living. And I think that we rightly need to see in this passage the wonder and the splendor of the prediction of John the Baptist who is going to come and prepare the way of the Lord Jesus who is going to purify and refine and He's going to save us and he's, they're going to, He is going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves just as this spoke to the Jews of what they could not do. But we have to remember that there's still a moral requirement. That all through the New Testament, God doesn't say, okay, just believe in me and everything's fine. He says in 1 Peter, be holy because I am holy. Quoting Leviticus. Jesus himself says, um, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. That he still expects us to follow. And that brings us to the last verse, verse 6. Now, I, 
I know I've done the unthinkable here in suggesting that the, the, uh, the heading there is in the wrong place. But you can see in verse 6 where it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. That's actually the connecting particle in, in Hebrew. So, so the, it, do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. It's connected there. And what he's saying is, you're saying that I've changed and you can't trust me and so I'm not worth serving with diligence, but I don't change and that is the very reason that you are not consumed in your wickedness. My patience and my grace and my love have never changed and that's the reason that you're not destroyed. His, his grace doesn't change. It says in numerous places in the Bible, let me give you an Old Testament one. In Numbers 23, the, the speech that, that Balaam had to make to the king of Moab, I don't want to go into the whole story, but here's a pagan prophet speaking to a pagan king, and the Lord is making him like a puppet say what he wants him to say. And he says, am I a man that I change? Am I the son of man that I waffle? That's the Brian translation, by the way. No. I don't change. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews 11, now 13, sorry, speaking of Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No, no, you've deceived yourselves. I don't change, he says. His grace, his commitment to the promises, this is why they've never been consumed, even as they have been failing to honor him, even accusing him of being dishonest to them and favoring the wicked. Yet he is going to pay the price to prepare them to meet him and to live forever with him. But as I said, on us, the demand for holiness still remains. Jesus said also, you can't follow me, you can't be my disciple unless you take up your cross that the life of faith is not just simply a set of, of propositions that we assume, but rather it is a changed lifestyle of imitating God Himself through the law that He has given us and the, the direction, the, the, the biblical direction that He has given us. And lest we get discouraged by that and think, oh man, I've got to work harder, I've got to do more, we have to remember His love never changes. It's constant that he realizes that we can't do it on ourselves. And even when he purifies us and refines us, we're kind of like pigs who keep going back to the trough, aren't we? And he's the one who has to help us, and his, his love is unending. It's why he came in the first place in John 3.16. He loved the world, and so he sent his Son. And any who believe will not perish, but have eternal life. And in that beautiful passage where Paul is trying to uphold the fact of faith alone in the Lord Jesus as the way to be purified and cleansed in Galatians 2, he says that he loved me and gave himself up for me. His love is unending. That, that this life of obedience is not trying to earn his favor. It's trying to imitate the one who has done so much for us. Amen. And his commitment to his promises through millennia never failed and never will.
that from the moment he gave those promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, that all the nations would be blessed through his offspring, he knew that it was speaking of Jesus. And Paul rightly points that out in Romans, that the time, the proper time has come, that's actually in Galatians, that he sent the Lord Jesus, who was that offspring through whom the blessing would come. His promises are always there for us. He doesn't change, and that is why not only are we not consumed, that's why we can have the confidence to not be cynical. That whatever happens in our lives, we can trust Him because He hasn't changed. And He upholds what He says and what He's going to do. That our response, our trust is to endure. That's why there's so many passages in the New Testament about enduring. Even Jesus in Hebrews 12, he looked to what was coming, to the joy set before him and endured the cross. We keep going, trusting, enduring, because we know he doesn't change, which means he has never forgotten us. He's never ignored us. His plan is there, and we have become part of it through faith in Jesus Christ and it is much better than we could ever imagine, even though 60 years is a long time. It's as long as I've been alive. And I understand them feeling cynical, but it's not the answer, because he does not change. And so we stay close. We follow him and love him and obey him because... He always has our best interests at heart. His plan for us is always, as, again, as Paul says in Romans 8, it is always to tie everything together for the good of those who love him. It's not cynical. Rather, it's a response of trusting faithfulness and holding fast to him. There were a lot of times in biblical history, like this one, where there were times of silence. They knew what it was like to feel like the heavens were iron, as it says, that God wasn't listening. And yet this addresses that, doesn't it? I have not changed. And your lifespan, whether comfortable or difficult, does not change the character of God. Rather, we can with great assurance, regardless of the walk that we have in life, hold on to him in faith and trust and hope that he will accomplish what he wants. As we face life, we're tempted often to fear and cynicism, aren't we? Perhaps just as much today as back then. But the very last verse gives us great hope. God has not changed His promises have not changed. His love has not changed. And His grace shown to us in Christ has not changed. And the correct response is not a fear. It's not a cynicism. And this coming year, it's not any of those or a self-reliance. But it's rather what Paul says in Philippians 3.13. That we forget what is behind and we strain forward to what is ahead because of the hope that we have in an unchanging God who has shown grace, who is showing grace, and will ultimately complete us through His grace. 
And that is our prayer here at Redeemer, that this can be our attitude as we enter 2024. Let's take just a few minutes to ponder uh, the passage and what the Spirit might be saying to you through it before we come for our final songs. Amen. This one whom we